Nick, thank you so much. It's, uh, it's just such a sweet joy to be here. And there's a particular um, joy and satisfaction that I get when I see former students from the Pastors College, so many of you here. So great to see you guys. And Bob, I was doing just fine until you had to sing How Marvelous. And then I thought, how am I supposed to preach uh, after that? So thank you so much for leading us. Thank you for your kindness to me over the years, I think 24 years now. Um, I am so grateful to God for my relationship with Sovereign Grace. I feel God has been very kind to me um, personally and pastorally through Sovereign Grace. And a lot of that, brothers, come through you. So thanks for the invitation uh, to be here. I do feel such a privilege being back here at Worship God. Um, but I am eager now for us to benefit from God's word together. So would you please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Psalms and find Psalm 62. Psalm 62, you follow along. As I read, this is God's word. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him he only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. So trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken twice, have I heard this? that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. So let's pray and ask for God's help. 
Father, we, we just come to you now and ask you for things that only you can provide. God, I pray for the help that I need to preach faithfully. God, I ask that you would help each one of us listen faithfully. We pray, accomplish all your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me begin today by asking you a thought question. In one of my daughter's high school history classes, the teacher would invariably begin the class period by what he called an opener. He'd ask a question and the students would have a minute to kind of think through their response and then he would proceed to call on various students and have them share their thoughts. I won't call on you to stand and share your thoughts, but let me at least ask you an opener. Here it is. What is the most important thing about you? Think about it. What is the most important thing about you? If you had to answer that question, what would you say? You might remember last night Bob shared with us how A.W. Tozer answered that question. Here's what he said, the most important thing about you is what you believe about God. The most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God, and I believe Tozer is right. In fact, it just makes sense. If God is the ultimate reality in the universe, which he is, and if God is that upon which everything else depends, which he is, then what you believe about him is the most important thing about you. Listen, what you believe about God will make all the difference in the world in your life. I have found that as I meet with people as a pastor, and I talk with them about some struggle going on in their spiritual life, there, there are two really good questions, very helpful questions that kind of have in my mind. Sometimes those questions are just in my mind as I'm listening and interacting with a person. Sometimes those questions actually come out and they become a part of our conversation. Here's the questions. What is this person believing about God that is not true? And what is this person not believing about God that is true? I mean, those are really helpful questions because it really does make all the difference in the world what we believe about God. And the purpose of the Bible is to get us thinking and believing rightly about God. That's the purpose of the whole Bible, to make God known to us. That's what this is. It is a revelation of God by God so that we might know him rightly. So the whole Bible is aimed to make God known, but some parts of the Bible, some books are especially explicitly designed 
to get us thinking and believing rightly about God. And the book of Psalms is one of those books. The Psalms are an unusually, explicitly, God-focused, God-centered, God-exalting, God-occupied part of Scripture, and their purpose is to get God right in our minds and in our hearts, to set God before us so that we might believe him for who he truly is. The Psalms tell us who God is, they tell us what God is like. They tell us what pleases God and what displeases God. They tell us what he has done for his people. They tell us how he is with his people. The Psalms are a wonderfully rich repository of truth about God. And their purpose is to get God rightly in our minds and into our hearts so that we might believe rightly and then live rightly before him. Of the, the many things that the book of Psalms does, arguably, at least I would argue, the greatest thing it does in a very immediate, very personal way with very immediate, very personal implications is it tells us who God is and what should be in our minds and in our hearts when we think of him. And one of the major things the Psalms tell us about God is that God is our unchanging, trustworthy refuge. Our perfectly trustworthy refuge. Over and over again with remarkable regularity, the Psalms tell us God is a refuge for us. Tell me if these verses don't sound familiar. Let all who Take refuge in you, rejoice. Psalm 5. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Psalm 7. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Psalm 16. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, in whom I take refuge. Psalm 18. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you, Psalm 25. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge, Psalm 31. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me, Psalm 31. Right now, some of you are thinking, is he going to go through the whole book of Psalms? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but just let these words wash over you. I want you to feel this. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him, Psalm 34. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble, Psalm 46. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings, Psalm 61. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Psalm 71, be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man 
But my eyes are toward you, O Lord. My Lord, in you I seek refuge. I cry to you, O Lord. I say you are my refuge. He is my steadfast love and my fortress and my stronghold, my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I take refuge. Now, I just read, I think, 20 instances of that word showing up in the book of Psalms, and I could easily have read twice that many. It's all over the book of Psalms. I mean, you'd almost think the psalmists had something on their mind. Clearly, clearly God wants us to know that he is a refuge. Why? Because he wants us to come to him and put our trust in him. As you read through the Psalms, that word shows up dozens and dozens of times to describe God, to give us a picture of what God is like. And if you throw in synonyms like fortress and rock and hiding place or similar images like those, it ends up that the vast majority of the Psalms speak of this particular characteristic of God, that he is refuge-like. I mean, clearly, God really wants us to know this about him. He wants this to be a deep and strong and functioning conviction in us. Why? Well, it's because he knows that the human heart needs refuge. I mean, security, you know this intuitively. Security is one of the greatest longings of the human heart. And he knows that because the human heart needs refuge, the human heart will seek refuge. He knows that. He knows that there are many things that we will experience in our life that will make us look for refuge, hurts and heartaches that we've been through, uncertainties and worries about the future, um, danger, hostility from others, the effects of time, the upheaval of the world, all sorts of things like that to say nothing about our daily troubles and vulnerabilities. We need refuge. We need safety, a place of protection. We are frail, small, vulnerable beings in need of a place of safety. And God wants us to make him our refuge. He wants us to come to him. You know, in every one of those situations that I mentioned a moment ago, we are inclined, powerfully inclined, to look somewhere for refuge, for comfort, for safety, for security. And in our natural state, we're tempted to look to something close by, something immediate, something seen. And the world and the enemy of your soul, I tell you, they are more than happy to put all sorts of things in front of you as possibilities, something to ease your anxiety, something to comfort us, something to make us feel secure, all sorts of things. Some of them respectable, some not so respectable. And in every case, God says, no, don't go there. 
Don't look to that. That will not be a refuge. It might be a temporary escape, but it will never be a refuge. I remember reading something some time ago that helped me see this point so clearly. Listen to these words. This is from David Paulison. So insightful. He writes, I remember the time that I counseled a man who habitually escaped life's pressures into, listen to this list, TV, food, video games, alcohol, pornography, antique collecting, sci-fi novels. Paulison says, where to begin? Could I find a passage to focus his problems? I wasn't sure what to pick up on. Then it struck me, try the Psalms as a whole. Every single psalm in some way or another portrays the Lord as our refuge in trouble. The psalms implicitly and explicitly rebuke taking refuge in anything less. This man felt vaguely guilty for some of his bad behavior, but he didn't see the pattern or the seriousness. His efforts at change were half-baked and unsuccessful. Conviction of the specific sin of his heart, turning from the living God in order to seek idolatrous refuge woke him up and made him see his behavior in a fresh way. You know, the one thing that you want in a refuge is stability, strength, trustworthiness. You you don't want the place you're going to for safety and protection to collapse or to give in or to be shown to be a trap instead of a refuge. No, it's got to be trustworthy. It's got to hold up. That's what makes it a refuge. And Paulison is right. In the book of Psalms, over and over again, is presented the only real refuge, and that's where our psalm, Psalm 62, comes in. I mean, clearly, Psalm 62 is saying that God is our trustworthy refuge. But more than that, Psalm 62 is, is, is declaring, it's announcing, it's proclaiming the exclusivity of God as our refuge. That he alone is trustworthy, that he only is our refuge. That's the claim that Psalm 62 is making. And when I read verses like verses 6 and 7 of this psalm, He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. When I read verses like that, it sounds very much like some other words spoken centuries later come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, oppressed and in need of a place of protection, come to me and I will give you rest. But I'm getting way ahead of myself. Let's look first more closely at this psalm. When we are in situations that put us in need of refuge and being what we are living in this world, that is a daily reality, a constant reality, our being in need of refuge, And being in that situation, there are two very common places that we might be tempted to look for refuge. I'm I'm not suggesting here that these are the only two places we're tempted to look. We might wish it were that simple. 
I'm not even suggesting that these are necessarily the leading places that you personally might be tempted to go. I just know that for many people, maybe even for most people, these two false refuges are remarkably tempting. And I want to pay particular attention to them in light of the fact that these two are the ones Psalm 62 names and talks about. Here they are. The approval or acceptance of other human beings and the security and power of financial wealth. The approval and acceptance of other human beings, we can be tempted to go there for refuge. And the security and power of financial wealth, we can be tempted to go there for refuge. Those are the two things that Psalm 62 vividly presents to us as tempting but ultimately false refuges. While at the same time, Psalm 62 even more vividly, even more emphatically tells us that there is only one true refuge and that is God. So let's look for a moment first at these two tempting false refuges. First, the approval or acceptance of other human beings. What did this look like for David? Well, very early in his life, David was kind of thrust into the public eye. After his encounter on the battlefield with Goliath, there was a lot of recognition, a lot of accolades came his way, lots of connections now with important people. David would have known the temptation to find some sort of security in other people's opinion of him. But how quickly that can change. I mean, very soon, God brought him into a very different set of circumstances. I mean, you know the story here, right? King Saul became jealous of all of the attention that David was getting. The, the loyalties of the royal court became sharply divided. David found himself the object of both remarkable loyalty and remarkably fierce opposition. And you see that reflected regularly in the Psalms. I mean, just look at the very next Psalm, for example. You see what it says there at the top of Psalm 63? A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness. <laughs> and you say, what's he doing out there? Just enjoying a little getaway time? Now he's running for his life. And in verse 9 of that Psalm, Psalm 63, he speaks about those who seek his life. Many of the Psalms were written out of circumstances like that. We see it here in Psalm 62 in verses 3 and 4. How long will you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? David is already feeling weakened and vulnerable. Verse 4, they only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. David is in a situation that puts him not just physically, in fact, not even primarily physically, but existentially, his soul in need of refuge. He is experiencing the dark side of people's opinion of him. And not only are there those who are outright attacking him, but there are those who are deceitful. They say nice things to his face. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they are wishing for David's downfall. Now, can you imagine 
the state of David, the condition he would be in if he made other people's approval or acceptance of him his refuge, his security. Can you imagine the state you would be in if other people's approval of you was the place you sought refuge? Maybe you can imagine that. And it's not just dangerous when people are obviously against you, even when they're not attacking you, even when things are fairly normal. People, understand this, people simply don't possess what is needed for your soul. I mean, look at the raw truth of verse 9. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In other words, all men, whatever your circumstances, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're for me or against me, there is there's no refuge-like substance there. There is no real strength in them and their opinions. There's nothing ultimately refuge-like like, there. At least not enough for the soul of a person that was made for God. So that's what it looked like for David. But what might this look like for us? I mean, hasn't God given us people to trust and to look to? Like parents. Isn't there supposed to be some refuge there? One of my favorite verses in all of the Bible about parenting, Proverbs 14, 6, a man who fears the Lord has a fortress, and for his children it will be a, you know what it says? Refuge. I know there was a refuge for me and my parents. Several years ago, my mom, she was going through old pictures. She found this picture of me and my dad when I was maybe two, maybe three years old, we're out on a family camping trip. I'm sitting between my dad's legs, kind of leaning back into him. His upper body, his arms and his shoulders are above and around me. I'm kind of nestled in there, surrounded by him. It is a wonderfully warm picture, and it represents what my dad was to me. And not just when I was a little boy. When I got that picture, I put it in a nice frame and I put it in a very prominent place above my desk. And soon after I put it there, my wife came into the office one day and she picked up that picture and, and she said, this is a great picture of what your dad has been to you over the years. And then she said these words, steady, shelter, refuge. She said those words. I wrote them down. Isn't that the way it's supposed to be? With parents towards children, with spouses towards one another, with friends toward each other? Of course it is. But when parents and spouse and friends are good and faithful and godly, well, that's what they are. They're godly. They're godlike. They are only reflecting God. And when they are functioning as they, as they should, they should be directing your trust, your soul's trust, not to themselves, but to God. Do you remember Jonathan going to David out there in the wilderness? What did he do? He does not try to be a refuge for him. No, he, I quote, helped him find his strength in God. I cannot tell you how many times my father and my mother 
both explicitly and by example, pointed me not to themselves, but to God thousands of times. So, Christian brother, sister, think of your close Christian friends right now. When he, when she stands in need of refuge for their soul, not in a self-righteous way, but in, not in a superficial way, but in a loving way, direct your friend to God. Your friendship is a means. God is the end. Parents, when your children stand in need of refuge for their souls, not in a harsh way or a perfunctory way, but with love and skill, direct them through the provisional refuge of your faithful parenting to the real refuge of God. Husbands, when your wives stand in need of refuge for their souls, which they will, not in a domineering way, but in a loving, care-filled, understanding way, direct them to God. Wives, when your husbands stand in need of refuge for their souls, which they will, not in a short, dismissive way, but with tenderness and respect, direct your husbands to God. And brother, sister, when you stand in need of refuge for your soul, like you do right now, and you will tomorrow, be careful not to look to others and their approval and their opinion of you for refuge. Be aware of how you might be looking to them and instead purposefully direct yourself to God. He alone has what is needed to be a trustworthy place of safety for your soul. Well, there's a second commonplace that we're tempted to turn for refuge, and that is the security and power of financial wealth. So what did this look like for David? Well, once he was past that extended episode with Saul, he became a much-loved king of Israel. He occupied a position of privilege and power and wealth. He would have tasted some of that earlier in his life, but later it would become his life, a life of privilege, a life enjoying wealth. But he says something in this psalm that in light of that wealth, I find very telling. Look at verse 10. Put no trust in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Now, let's be very careful here. The increased riches of the second half of that verse is not speaking of the results of the extortion and robbery mentioned in the first half of the verse. How do I know? Because that word increase is actually an image of fruitfulness. It's speaking of a more natural and more honorable growing of wealth. Well, then the question becomes... Why does he put that together with those things named in the first half of the verse, extortion and robbery? I mean, when stuff like that happens in your Bible, take note, because something's going on. Let me tell you what I think is happening here. David is saying, preoccupation with riches, 
setting your heart on them is how he says it. Even if it's not gained illegally, setting your heart there is similar in a specific way to criminal financial gain. They are equally perilous. Trusting in wealth gained honorably and trusting in wealth gained dishonorably are equally perilous. It's not the increase that is wrong. It's the setting your heart on it, the putting of your trust in it. It's the looking to wealth as a place of refuge. You see, David was in a position where he could have been tempted, easily tempted to trust in the security and power of financial wealth. He was in position, quite frankly, to use either of those methods named in verse 10, honorable or dishonorable. I mean, we know he certainly was capable of dishonorable behavior. But now let's ask the question, what could this look like for us? I mean, didn't God intend for us to work hard and earn money to provide for our needs and to save for the future? Well, yes, he did. The book of Proverbs is pretty clear. But he also knows how easy it is to slip over that line, how easy it is for wealth to turn from being a tool to being a refuge, a security. Even if money is gained in an honest and honorable way as a result of good labor and patience, still it does not possess what is needed for your soul. So what should we do when tempted to look there for refuge? Well, let me suggest we should remember and act on three things. First, you should remember that your strength and your ability to earn that came from God. So you should be filled with gratitude to him, not pride in you. And second, you should remember it all belongs to God. You're just a steward. And third, and most pertinent for us right now, you should remember that money is a terrible refuge. It does not have what your soul needs, no matter how loudly it might claim to. In fact, if you make wealth your refuge, it will eat away at your soul, and eventually it will cause your soul to shrivel up to almost nothing. So, think about your earnings and your savings. Is it wrong to have those? No. Is it wrong to have as much as you have in your savings? or as much as you want to have in your savings? Maybe. Is it wrong to be thinking about money the way you're thinking about it? Maybe. I mean, God says ever so clearly, set not your heart upon him. And we should say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my anxious thoughts, see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. So these are two very common, very alluring false refuge, refuges. And what is the truth, the great truth that God's word presents 
in the face of these false alternatives? It says, without any reservation, God alone is refuge. Look at verse 5. For God alone, my soul waits in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. I mean, just look at these images. He is rock-like, solid, safe, trustworthy. He is fortress-like, safe, surrounding, trustworthy. He's a refuge. And David takes pains to say, God alone is that. God alone Listen, David has purposefully, in his circumstances, rather than trying to take matters into his own hands or to turn to other places of seeming refuge, he has purposed to trust in God, to turn to God, to wait on God. It's so clearly seen in his repeated emphasis on exclusivity. You can't miss it. Verse 1, God alone. Verse 2, he only. Verse 5, God alone. Verse 6, he only. Verse 7, my refuge is God Verse 8, trust in him at all times, never anything else. I mean, the sheer repetition of this truth makes this psalm just stand out in the book of Psalms. So let's ask the question one more time. Why? Why should we make God alone our refuge? Well, Psalm 62 tells us it's because he alone possesses something that makes him a trustworthy, reliable refuge. Look with me at verse 11. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, which is just kind of an Old Testament way of heightening what he's about to say. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. It's not hard to see where this is going, right? Power belongs to God, a kind of power, a refuge-like power. Human beings have some power. That's why they can be attempting alternative. Money has some power. That's why it can be attempting alternative. But when compared to the power of God, whose Eternal power is clearly seen in what has been made and who upholds the universe by the word of his power and who showed the surpassing greatness of his power when he raised Christ from the dead and who has promised also to raise us from the dead by his power and bring you into the safety of his eternal kingdom. Friends, that kind of power belongs to God alone. And that kind of power is what is needed to actually be a trustworthy refuge for the human soul. Power belongs to God. And you know what else belongs to God? Look there at verse 12. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. Heard anything about that recently? A kind of love 
a refuge-like love. Nothing else has this kind of love. I mean, if I started to read for you the places, even just in the Psalms where this characteristic, God's steadfast love is named, I mean, we'd be here the rest of the afternoon and deep into the evening. This is the single most celebrated attribute of God in all of Scripture. His hesed, his steadfast covenant love for his people. No one else has this like he does. This is attributed to no one else in Scripture. And it is necessary to being a trustworthy refuge for the human soul. It speaks of God's dependability, his reliability, what he has said he will do. He is never failing. And you can see why both of these are necessary. If God had only one and not the other, let's say he had power, but no steadfast love, he could easily say to us, man, I could do a lot, but why should I care about you? Or on the other hand, if he had steadfast love, but no power, he might say, you know, I really love you, but I wish I could do something. It's the combination of these two excellencies in God that make him a trustworthy refuge, power, and steadfast love. So if you believe those things are true of God, it will make you want to run to him and it will make all the difference in where you look for refuge. So this psalm, Psalm 62, is not just saying God is our refuge. It is saying, in fact, it's emphatically declaring God alone is our refuge because God alone is refuge-like. He alone is unchangeably trustworthy. And friends, that is a point that is carried personally by Jesus into the New Testament. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and find your rest for your soul in me. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father with all that he is for us except through me. Listen, that Christ is our refuge is no mere figure of speech. Nothing in this world is more a matter of fact. Jesus Christ in his life and in his death and in his resurrection is God as refuge extended to us. And when you put your trust in Christ, you experience the refuge of God. So, what should we do? Go to God all the time, in all circumstances. And don't just go to him, entrust yourself to his protection and his safety and his rest. Look there at verse Eight of our psalm, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge 
for us. Sometimes that will take the form of our silent waiting, like verse 1. For God alone my soul waits in silence, quiet, trusting, waiting. And sometimes that trust will take the form of pouring out our hearts, like verse 8. Pour out your heart before him. But go to him and trust yourself to him. Well, let me wrap this up with just a brief final word. We have been talking all through this message about our experience as individuals. My soul rests in God. My refuge is God. I count 14 times that David uses that word, my, my soul, my fortress, my refuge. But here we are, gathered for this conference, representing churches, local gatherings of believers, about whom we care deeply and for whom God has given us a measure of responsibility Does this word in Psalm 62 apply there on that level? Because you know churches can also be tempted to put their trust in men. And churches can also be tempted to put their trust in money. And God alone is refuge. As it's true for us as individuals, so it is true for us as churches. So... I find it more than just a little interesting that at the top of this psalm, it says to the choir master, to the worship leader. See, this truth of Psalm 62, that God alone is our trustworthy refuge and that he is worthy of our trust all the time was to be sung out loud in the sanctuary by all the people together. All of us saying together that power belongs to God. And to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. So you see it there in verse eight. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him, for God is a refuge for us. Let's pray.